What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bedeira. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. For the past 30 years, Care Heating and Cooling put you first. You are the reason they are open seven days a week. You are why they make it easy to schedule service at careheatingandcooling.com. Concern for your safety is why they check every gas furnace for carbon monoxide. It's because of you that their technicians are paid to fix your furnace and air conditioner, not sell you a new one. And if you do need a new furnace, their team will make sure you get exactly what you need at a cost that fits your budget. Care Heating and Cooling is committed to doing business right. Call them at 1-800-COOLING when you need a company you can trust. Calling all drivers. Here's why Polestar 2 is called the driver's EV. With all-electric performance and a range of up to 320 miles per charge, Polestar 2 has the power and handling to change your perceptions of EV driving. But the best way to find out for yourself is a test drive. Visit Polestar Columbus to test drive Polestar 2 today. 320 MPG range based on model year 24 Polestar 2 long range single motor variant and EPA standard. Visit Polestar.com for full details. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hey there and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says, I'm taking an aeroplane across the world to follow my heart. I'm Jonathan Strickland. And I'm Joe McCormick. And our other host, Lauren Vogelbaum, is not with us today. She's not feeling well. But today, Jonathan and I are going to be talking about a subject that we've touched on in the past. And we're going to come back and experience the fulfillment of an around-the-world journey of technology. Yeah. So back in uh, April... In 2014, on April 23rd, to be precise, we published a podcast about solar-powered vehicles. And we talked a lot about all sorts of different vehicles, right? We talked about cars. Solar-powered tanks. Don't think we got quite around to that. But we got to cars and boats and, and even airplanes. And we were talking about all sorts of different types of vehicles, including or, or different uh, ways of using solar power, from using solar power just as the primary means of getting energy to move the car to using solar power as a uh, recharging station for electric vehicles. Mm-hmm. So, or sort of a backup. Yeah. Uh, but one of the things we chatted about was – 
this idea of a solar-powered aircraft making a journey around the world. Yeah, so you may have remembered the name of this project. It was known as Solar Impulse back in the day. But we're sort of at the next level. It's one better. We've gone yes. to Solar Impulse 2. Right. The first Solar Impulse aircraft was impressive in its own right. We'll touch on that a little bit in this podcast. But it was the Solar Impulse 2 that was the vehicle of choice to try and get around the world using only solar power as the the source of energy. And uh, they succeeded. They did. Just, they've just succeeded in a full circumnavigation of the globe in a completely solar-powered airplane. Now, if if you haven't been reading about this and, and you're like, wait a minute, how, how long did it take? Did they ever land? It wasn't continuous. No, no. It, uh, was, uh, it was over the course of many, many, many segments. Right. And we'll, we'll even kind of, uh, uh, talk about just a few of those segments in particular when something of real, uh, interest beyond, I mean, beyond just the fact that they did this incredible feat of right. flying an airplane using solar power to generate electricity. Yeah, I guess I've read enough articles about solar impulse that I got kind of jaded. I'm like, yeah, another solar impulse article. I need to remember to be astonished that this is a solar powered airplane. Yeah, this it, is a heavier than air flying machine running entirely on photovoltaic cells. I still occasionally when I'm on an airplane will have that moment of this is incredible and then I think well not only is this incredible but someone has created a solar powered one of these yeah uh, typically I am on a jet not an airplane airplane so it's not exactly the same thing but it is really interesting and uh, we'll talk about kind of the the motivations behind doing this in the first place well what happens next now that this around the world journey has come to an end and some other interesting tidbits about the project here and there. But first we should kind of talk about where did this idea even come from to start with? And and I actually went back and listened to that April 23rd, 2014 episode because I wanted to make sure that when we did this episode, we didn't overlap too much, right? right. We didn't repeat ourselves, but really we were, we were pretty, uh, we were covering so many different topics in that episode that we didn't really dwell too much on solar impulse. So I feel okay about diving into the background a little bit in this one. Um, the, there were two people who were really the, the heart behind the project, the people who kind of came up with this notion and decided to, um, to really move forward with it. They're one known of, as Pinky and the Brain. <laughs> it's, Odd that you put it that way, and I'll tell you why. Because one of them is sort of the technical expert, and the other one was sort of the adventurer type. Uh-huh. Uh, but they both uh, have taken turns flying the Solar Impulse 2 around the world. So the two people uh, were Bertrand Picard and André Borschberg. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bertrand Picard was born in Lausanne in uh, Switzerland in 1958. And on the Solar Impulse website, if you wanted to read up on him, he is referred to <laughs> as, quote, a medical doctor, explorer, and lecturer, and achieved the first ever nonstop round-the-world balloon flight. Oh, I didn't even know he was also a balloonist. Oh, yeah. No, he comes from a family of balloonists. Uh-huh. That is not even a joke. That sounds like it would be a joke. Like, yeah, my family's into ballooning. It's absolutely true in the case of uh, Mr. Picard. So this um, is this is uh, this is not our brain. This is our pinky here. Not to say that he's not intelligent, right? But he's 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 our pinky. He's not the technical. He wasn't the technical uh, advisor. He's a psychiatrist, so clearly is 
already very intelligent. Uh, his father was an undersea explorer. His grandfather was a balloonist. Other members of the Picard family include organic chemists and other explorers and balloonists. I mean, when you read about the family, you're thinking, <laughs> this sounds like something out of a fantasy. And in fact, there can't be that many families of balloonists on the world. You would, yeah, probably very few and far between. Uh, Bertrand's grandfather, Auguste Picard, was the inspiration for a character in The Adventures of Tintin. No way. Yeah. There's a professor. Who's the character? There's a professor in, in The Adventures who's a, this brainy professor type, and he was mm-hmm. modeled in part on Bertrand Picard's grandfather. Why do uh, that professor? He makes me think of uh, Trotsky. Does he kind of look like Trotsky? <laughs> uh, I don't know that I would describe him as Trotsky looking. I guess, I mean, here's what I will say. The character is partly inspired by August Picard. Now um, I'm just trying to picture him. I might have the wrong character in my mind. There's so many in Tintin too, right? But it's it's funny that you know you talk about yeah these these sound almost like cartoon characters, and then you realize oh wait one of them kind of inspired a cartoon character. Uh, and Bertrand himself did a lot of flying as a young man. He uh, flew in ultralight aircraft, in balloons, and in hang gliders. And he completed his circumnavigation of the globe in a hot air balloon in 1999. So he had already set a record before moving on to the Solar Impulse Project. Like he had set the record as being part of a a project to fly around the world in a hot air balloon. So you wanted to move up to something that was just slightly more high tech. Yeah, yeah, and and much more challenging in many ways, from a technical standpoint at least. Endurance-wise, it's probably pretty rough either way. But uh, the other member, of course, Andre Borschberg, he was a graduate of MIT. So he's an, and he, his training is in engineering. That's kind of where his education was uh, focused. And he was born in Zurich, Switzerland in 1952. And he's also like, I mean, if you read up on him, he is an incredible advocate for a lot of social causes. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has dedicated a lot of time and resources to uh, organizations like uh, Restos de Cour, which is uh, or used to be known as Restaurants de Cour. This is actually a French organization that provides food to the needy. Mm-hmm. Um, he's also helped with social causes that benefit the sick. He's, he's someone who is he's very outspoken about his desire to improve the lot of people around the world in as many ways as he can and also has a lot of passion uh, about the environment as does Picard as well both of them share this and obviously that played a large part into the decision to try and make a solar powered airplane which right. you'd think was kind of crazy um he was sort of the technical department head so yeah he's our he's our brain so uh, when did they get this crazy idea to try to make a solar powered airplane that they could take around the planet well picard kind of came up with it in 2002 and then he ended up talking with borschberg and uh, they decided to officially create a project called the Solar Impulse Project in 2003. So that was when they really started to say, well, what what's going to be necessary? What are we going to need in order to make this happen? And there were a lot of reasons that they were excited about doing this. <laughs> Sorry, the thing that popped into my mind is parachutes. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, we... I didn't put it in our notes, but I will touch on something interesting because there are certain questions that immediately come up to mind when you start hearing about how long some of these flights were. Uh-huh. And I will I will go into some of that when we get there. Bedpans. Yeah, or the fact that – well, no, let's not, let's not spoil it. I'll get there. Uh, so 
one of the reasons that they decided they wanted to do this, of course, was just the the attractiveness of of setting another world record, right? Yeah. Creating a world's first. I mean, there could only be one world's first in any given category, and this was a way of doing that. So there's there's definitely that that sort of fame and and explorer kind of side of the equation. Yeah, but this wouldn't be just a personal achievement. Like anytime you demonstrate what can be done with renewable energy in a way that surprises people, I think that helps knock down some of the barriers that exist in opposition to uh, greater investment in renewable energy like solar. Right. Yeah, that's precisely what they were seeing too. They were th- saying like, well, this is kind of like a a giant PR project to promote solar energy in particular and renewable energy in general. Mm-hmm. And they also said, you know, by setting yourself a challenge, by giving yourself a definitive goal that we want to be able to achieve X, you then have to determine, well, what is necessary for you to get to X? It gives you something to work toward, yeah. which is a little bit easier than something that's open-ended, like I want to improve solar cell technology. It's kind of like saying we're going to go to the moon as opposed to we're going to develop our space exploration capabilities. Yes, and by giving yourself that definitive goal, then you have – created like a laser-like focus yeah. on what is necessary to achieve that goal. And the nice thing is making those advancements ends up creating benefits that go well beyond just that specific project. And we'll talk a little bit about that toward the end of this episode. So from 2003 to 2010, they were really working on designing the plane that could fly not just in the daytime with direct solar energy. So – it's one thing to create an aircraft that has enough surface area for solar cells to provide the electricity necessary to turn uh, electric or to power electric motors that mm-hmm. then turn propellers. That's a challenge all on its own. Yeah, and we'll talk more about some of those design considerations in a bit. Right. So the other part of that is how do you create one that can continue to fly when the sun goes down? Because that that's been the big a criticism, one of the big criticisms about solar power in general is that, well, you're dependent upon the sun. When the sun's not out, you're not generating electricity. And so you have to figure out, well, how do you solve that problem for any application that uses solar power? Not, I mean, flying a plane across the Pacific Ocean, that's a pretty clear engineering challenge, yeah. right? Well, yeah, electricity generation is a use it, lose it, or store it proposition. If yes. You, if you don't use it immediately or find a way to store it, it's not going to help you. Yeah, it's just, it's there, it's ephemeral, it's gone, right? So they were able to uh, create in 2010 uh, the Solar Impulse 1, the first of the aircraft, and uh, it demonstrate that it could actually fly through an entire day-night cycle using onboard batteries to store electricity. And then the batteries kick in once the solar cells are no longer able to pull the electricity necessary to power the motors. And um, uh, Picard flew that mission. It was a 26-hour long flight. So a day and two hours of wow. flying. And, and it was, again, a proof of concept. They knew at the time that the Solar Impulse 1 was not going to be the aircraft to go all the way around the world. But it was sort of the prototype that allowed them to test the technology and make sure that, in fact, it would serve when they needed to get to, a, 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 to circumnavigate the globe. 
2013, the two men flew the Solar Impulse aircraft across the United States. Uh, they took turns piloting the plane, and they traveled in several legs. So they would fly from one city to another city several hundred miles away. And then uh, typically what they would do is actually switch off so that one person, only one person's in the plane because weight is such a, a big consideration. Right. Right. So you've got the pilot and that's it. And the other person would either take a commercial flight to get to <laughs> the destination or drive to the destination. Really? You could probably run. And yeah. I mean, if you want, yeah. <laughs> The, these these plane this plane does not go very fast in the grand scheme of things, uh, but then you would switch off. You know, you go to whatever the next city is, and then the pilots would trade. And this was not, con- this wasn't necessarily like a, a one flight right after the next either, right? There was a lot right. of downtime between flights because for one thing, they needed to make sure that the weather conditions were going to be exactly acceptable. Yeah, yeah that's a big thing because this this plane's. Even though it's made out of some pretty interesting high-tech material, ultimately you're still talking about a fairly delicate machine. And so you couldn't just – and plus, again, you need so- solar power. You need sunlight. So flying through like storms, not a great idea with a solar-powered aircraft. Usually when the captain says we can't take off in this weather, it is a safety consideration. Yes. In this case, you literally might not be able to right. take off. You might not have the energy necessary to achieve flight. Yeah. So, uh, but that, that happened in 2013. They were able to fly across the United States in this, in this several, uh, legs kind of journey. And in 2014, they officially started to work on the second aircraft, Solar Impulse 2. And they began to incorporate, uh, lessons that they learned from the first Solar Impulse aircraft. And this one would be the one that ends up flying around the world. That didn't start until 2015. And it went until July 2016. So it was a really – took a year and several months. Yeah. It was a long process. This was not, again, something that was done in one continuous trip. Um, so let's talk about some of the design considerations that come into play when you're talking about a solar-powered aircraft. Well, the most obvious one is the difference in the energy that you're using to power the vehicle. So yep. in a normal airplane – you would use to circumnavigate the globe, you're going to be running on aviation fuel. There are different kinds of aviation fuel, Mm -hmm. but most often it's a kerosene-based jet fuel these days. And that's going to be a high-energy density, high-quality fuel. Uh, And it's important for flight because heavier-than-air flight is not just energy-hungry, it's energy-ravenous. Yeah. Um, you have to generate enough thrust to overcome the gravity of the entire planet. Yes. I mean, just think about it. Yeah, the planet is constantly trying to pull you down to it and give you a big, earthy hug. Right. So uh, it, it is rather earthy, isn't it? Yes. Or yes. I guess it could also be briny. Yeah, I guess depending upon what part of the earth you are over. Actually, it's more briny than earthy when you really get down to surface area, but go yeah, on. Quite true. Uh, but yeah, so the, these, these are design considerations you'd have to factor in. So to lift an airplane off the ground, you've got to generate that forward thrust mm-hmm. to, uh, to drive the, the air in the way you want it to go across the aerodynamic design of the airplane under the wings. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, there are considerations like the wingspan. You can make the wings longer to generate more lift as you're trying to fly, but that also adds weight. Right. So you have to, you have to make that. I mean, there's so much delicate math that goes into designing something like this where you think, all right, what is the optimal arrangement of wingspan to weight? Yeah. Where we're going to have the large enough wingspan to generate the lift we need to get off the ground and 
and hopefully have the best wingspan to uh, uh, improve the efficiency of flight so that you're not having to spend way too much energy to maintain flight. Like mm-hmm. You want to have the minimum amount of energy you need to continue to be in the air. Yeah. Uh, but you don't want – you can't go – you know, you can't make a, a wingspan of indefinite length because eventually you get to a weight that it makes it impossible for you to achieve flight in the first place. Structural integrity. Exactly. And, and that yeah. also is a, a real issue, right? Like if you got too big, then the ends of the wings would be so heavy that your aircraft would break apart. Yeah. Uh, so this aircraft was powered by photovoltaic cells, as we said. So yes. The, that's the kind that directly converts the sunlight into electricity as opposed to other forms of solar, such as solar thermal. Right. It's not It's not generating electricity through heat. It's changing. It's when the photons excite electrons, and that's what you get with your uh, yeah. electricity. And it's you just, the, the big black mirrors that you've seen. Yep. Yeah. Yep, the kind that you would see on uh typically like if if so, if your neighbors or if you have ever installed solar panels on the top of a house, that's typically the kind that we're talking about. Right. Uh so it's got a lot of those. It's yeah. got uh 17,248 photovoltaic cells that are across the top of the airplane for maximum exposure. Yeah, and and those cells uh provide uh, electricity to four 13.5 kilowatt motors. And those motors each turn – well, each motor turns a propeller and also provides uh, charge to uh, onboard batteries. So if you look at the Solar Impulse 2 and you see this this plane with really wide wings, you'll see that there are the four propellers in these little like rectangular casings. Right. Those casings hold not just the propeller and the electric motor but also the battery, the four big batteries that are on board this plane. So that's where they're balanced there along the wings so that the weight is distributed just the right way and that the propellers are positioned in such a way to provide the optimal thrust for the aircraft. Now, those batteries have to be an interesting design consideration because usually batteries are heavy. Yeah, these batteries are, are, they make up 25% of the aircraft's overall weight. More than 25% actually. It's more, more than a quarter of the weight of the aircraft goes to those four batteries that are in the, the wings of the Solar Impulse 2. Yeah, so let's get into the, the design here. So yeah. this thing, if you've seen a picture of it, and if you haven't, you should go look it up. There are some, some great photo galleries online of yep. the Solar Impulse, uh, you, either at stations around the world or in flight. It, it's cool looking. It's got a massive wingspan, gigantic. Yeah, it's huge. A wingspan of 72 meters, and that is compared uh, – for, for comparison, I looked up the wingspan of a Boeing 747-8, which is 68.4 meters. So this is a one-passenger aircraft that has a wider wingspan than a Boeing 747. Right. And uh, in case uh, you're not up on the metrics, uh, for one thing, if you wanted to switch it to yards, it's almost 79 yards wide, which means that it's getting pretty close to being as wide as a football field is long. I mean, yeah. you know, it would, it would, if you were to put it in the center line of a football field, it would span a very good portion we'll of go the pretty of much the, to the two ten yard lines. Yeah, it's it's pretty impressive. It's about uh, two hundred thirty six feet if you prefer feet to yards. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so huge wingspan. But on but compare that to the fact that the entire airplane, according to this public facing material Solar Impulse put out, it weighs two point three tons. Okay, so that's a lot if you're trying to, like, lift it with your arms. Yeah. But that is not a lot for an aircraft. Compare that again to a Boeing 747. Actually, the weight of which I I couldn't find from Boeing itself. I'm 
I guess maybe we shouldn't consider it surprising that they don't want to share publicly the weight of their aircraft. But I did find an online uh, aviation encyclopedia that claimed that the empty weight of a Boeing 747 is about uh, 470,000 pounds, which works out to uh, 213,188 kilograms. Yeah, that's, that's hefty. But think about the comparison there. So the solar impulse has about 105% of a 747's wingspan and less than 1% of its empty weight. Right. So you already are seeing that they had to make some pretty uh, dramatic considerations in order to make this a viable aircraft. Beyond that, you could say, well, how did they get the weight so low? And part of it was the use of lightweight materials like various carbon fiber composites that are lighter in weight than stuff like steel and aluminum. Mm -hmm. But that's not enough. They also decided, hey – is this particular system necessary for the plane to get up and stay up in the air? And if it isn't, we're getting rid of it. And that's exactly what they did when they started designing the solar impulse. They said anything that's not specifically necessary to get into the air or stay in the air, we're not going to put it on the plane. So do they have like the pilots weighing their breakfast that they before they take off? I, I, I'm certain that they had very specific like uh, allotments for what food could be brought onto the plane because you you have to eat. Yeah. Some of these flights took more than a hundred hours, uh, and that's multiple days, obviously. So uh, one of the other things they would do is say like, well, you know, it would it'd be pretty heavy if we had a system to pressurize the cockpit. So let's not do that. So the cockpit was unpressurized. Also unheated. Unheated, uh, yeah. There was uh, no heating or air conditioning in, in that cockpit. Yep. You uh, you were pretty much uh, going to need to make sure you were bundled up or able to cool off um, or just endure it uh, for the length of the flight. And it also meant that they had to have um, now like – uh, they had to carry like a, a portable oxygen tank mm-hmm. to occasionally uh, take a good whiff because <laughs> they're flying at they're flying at decent altitudes like twenty nine thousand feet. I mean that's that's pretty high up there. So they were definitely uh, being adventurous in this approach. So anyway, they, these uh, these considerations weren't made lightly. Right. It wasn't like they were just being cavalier about it. They were making very tough calls on. All right, what what can we expect to do without putting our lives at risk uh, unnecessarily? Uh and what can we what do we absolutely have to have in order for this to be a successful project and not a terrible terrible note in history. And that's a that's a tough call because these both of I mean clearly Picard had a history of adventure in his past and you know sometimes uh you might make a call that other people would say, well, that just seems like that's too far beyond the th- my threshold for risk, mm-hmm. right? But uh, th- this meant that they got a plane that was at that 2.3 tons that wasn't wasn't as he- nearly as heavy as other aircraft. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why it was a success because they were able to keep that weight down, which allowed the electric motors to pr- provide enough thrust to keep the plane going. So – it kind of brings us over to the fact that we you know we mentioned before the flying by night. Like, how do you fly by night? Right. If you've got to fly for four days straight, 
uh, in order to go across an ocean or right. something like that. And you, if you're you can't de- you can't just run on what's available at the moment. Right. And if you're determined, if you're absolutely determined that solar power is going to be the source of your energy, and you're not going to fudge by having a, a like a, a, a fuel based motor, yeah, backup motor, uh, or something yeah, like some that. sort of engine as well as the motors, then you've got to figure out. You know, how are we going to, to continue to fly at, in, you know, the hours of darkness? And that, of course, comes down to those batteries we talked about. They have, uh, four high voltage batteries aboard the Solar Impulse 2. And, uh, the phot- photovoltaic cells can actually generate enough electricity to both power the electric motors and recharge the batteries simultaneously, which was absolutely necessary on the very long flights, right? Because, you know, you would get to a point where, sure, you might be able to make it through one night, but if you're not able to recharge that battery during the next day, and then you go into a second night, you run into some serious problems. Uh, so each battery is a 70-liter lithium polymer battery with an energy density of 260 watt-hours per kilogram. And their total mass is 633 kilograms. And like I said, that means it's more than a quarter of the total weight of the aircraft. So... Uh, that to me is incredible that the batteries themselves make up more than a fourth of the, of the weight of the entire vehicle. Especially when you think of a vehicle that has a wingspan that, that huge. Mm-hmm. Uh, they could store a maximum capacity of 38.5 kilowatt hours of energy, of electricity. And they do, did have a second battery, but that battery wasn't like a backup system or anything. That second battery was a, a low voltage uh, type of battery that specifically provided electricity to the cockpit systems. So you would have your navigation tools and things like that continue to be powered uh, through that battery as opposed to one of the ones that was in charge of making sure the propellers didn't stop moving. Right. Um, and uh, if you look again at the picture, you'll see the little – they called them gondolas, the 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 kind of rectangular cubic sort of – containers yeah. that the propellers extend out of they are pretty big uh there was a great picture in one of the in one of the pages on the solar impulse page that uh showed a person an engineer laying inside a gondola clearly working inside of it on connections and so all you see are the person's legs and feet sticking out from the end of it so it was they were big they're not tiny things and the batteries take up a good amount of space in there and uh, they actually partnered with a whole bunch of different companies to create this. Uh, it wasn't just Solar Impulse 2. Mm-hmm. So in this way, Solar Impulse is a lot like organizations like NASA. Yeah. Where they partner with other companies to provide materials or entire systems depending upon mm-hmm. what it is you're talking about. The work of many hands. Yes. Yes. So this was not just two guys who went into a backyard and built a <laughs> solar-powered airplane. Uh, one of the companies they worked with quite a bit was Solvay. Um, they, Solvay did a whole bunch of different work on the Solar Impulse too, but they, for one thing, provided, uh, the material, the lightweight, sturdy material, mostly carbon fiber and carbon fire, fiber composites to create the actual body of the airplane. They also provided a protective resin to coat the solar cell. So it was transparent, but it also provided protection in the event of the aircraft encountering bad weather mm. or you know any sort of dust or anything like that that it may have to move through from one region to another you know you're going around the entire world that's a lot of different environments you're going to pass through right uh 
And the solar cells were provided by a company called SunPower, and they were really high efficiency, all things considered. They had an efficiency of 22.7%. Now, compared to consumer solar cells, which tend to be around 12 to 15 percent, mm-hmm. maybe you, you might find some as high as 20 percent, but that would really be super high end on the consumer side. 22.7 percent is pretty incredible. Now, that efficiency means that 22.7 percent of the energy hitting that solar cell can be converted into useful electricity. Yeah. The rest of it is bouncing off or being absorbed as heat. Which is sort of the nature of solar. Yeah. it's uh, We're never going to develop a solar cell that will be 100% efficient. It is physically impossible. The I think the hypothetical limit from like a quantum uh, level is somewhere between – I want to say I want to say like 80% is the absolute limit, but it's closer to like 60% for more realistic limits. Mm-hmm. And that's if everything were perfect which we'll never do anyway. Um, so getting to this 22.7% is actually pretty incredible, even though it sounds low. When you're thinking about percentages and you think 22.7, that doesn't sound that impressive, but trust me, it is. Uh, then there were other companies. There was a company called Omega that provided lightweight LEDs for uh, the lighting for the plane, obviously very important when it's coming in for a landing, that kind of stuff. And uh, there were others as well. So this was a group effort. Now let's kind of talk about the actual trip around the world. Well, yeah. So as we mentioned, the Solar Impulse is a one-seater. Yeah. So you don't get to have a companion on this journey. Yeah, and this was uh, the same as what I was talking about with the USA trip where the pilots would switch off between legs, but it would mean that one person would take a normal flight over to whatever the destination was and await the arrival of the the other pilot. Right. And then they would switch out and do that all the way around the world with some pretty significant delays in between some of those legs. That's got to create a very weird looking like commercial flight history. (laughs) Yeah. Well, there's going to be one point in particular where we're going to talk about some uh, kind of an unfortunate but sort of funny uh, set of circumstances that uh, involves the uh, more mundane aspects of travel. Uh, well, so the two pilots were the same two pilots we talked about before. It's yeah. the same two guys behind Solar Impulse. Yeah, Picard so, and Borschberg, yeah. Right. So uh, as we mentioned before, the flight was not continuous. There were 17 different stages of the flight uh, that they spent a total of over 500 hours in the air yeah. going around the world. But layovers included, it took, as we said, uh, over a year to complete the entire circumnavigation. Right. So 500 hours is around uh, 21 days. So you think about it, you're like, think about for for three quarters of the month of February, uh-huh. <laughs> you are flying. Yeah. Not, I mean, for, for, for 24 hours a day. Yeah. For three weeks, <laughs> you're flying. It's a lot of flying. I don't want to do that. I mean, you would hit executive platinum like no time at all, but that would be brutal. But you're not riding first class, are you? No, no. This isn't even steerage. <laughs> <laughs> if there were such a thing for aircraft. 
Uh, well, let's talk about the different legs of the flight because some of them, some of them we'll just gloss over pretty sure. quick. But yeah. a couple of them had some interesting stories we came across right. about them. So the, they started and finished in Abu Dhabi in the United Arab Emirates. Right. And uh, so the first leg of the trip was Abu Dhabi to Muscat, Oman. Right. And I wanted to give you guys sort of a comparison. Like we talk about 500 hours in the air, 21 days total, and it took more than a year for the whole thing to complete. But it's still kind of hard to put into your head. Like how fast is this? thing traveling? The answer is not very. Uh, <laughs> and so I thought one way to do that would be to take this first leg from Abu Dhabi to Muscat and to look at the amount of time it would take on a commercial flight versus the time it took the Solar Impulse 2 to complete that trip. Uh-huh. So if you were to book a commercial flight on uh, Oman Air, that particular trip would take about an hour and 15 or an hour and 20 minutes. Okay. And keep in mind, you know, that includes all that whole taxiing business, you know, the the stuff uh-huh. when you're not actually in the air. So somewhere around a little hour and 20 minutes uh, to get from point A to point B. Uh, the, the trip, the distance that the Solar Impulse 2 traveled, which, by the way, is probably not the exact same flight path that you would see in the commercial flights, uh, was about 480 miles or 772 kilometers. And it took them to uh, – it, it took the Solar Impulse 2 rather 13 hours, one minute to make the trip. So 13 hours and a minute to go the same distance that a commercial flight would take in an hour and 20. Wow. So, yeah, that's incredible. A 13-hour, uh, you know – I've been on some flights where there have been delays, but I've never had an hour and 20-minute flight stretch into a 13-hour, one-minute flight. Oh, man. I... I I don't... I don't like sitting on an airplane for a long period of time. Yeah. Um... I mean, not to, it, it is a, a wonderful modern luxury to be able to travel yes. all around the world. So I shouldn't complain about it. But I'm uh, I am not so made as to enjoy long periods of sitting still without being able to get around, get up and go do something else. Yeah, especially not being able to do it without being a complete inconvenience to everyone around you. Uh huh. Yeah, because that tends to be the way it is on flights. Also. One thing that you do have an advantage of over the pilots of the Solar Impulse 2, this is a good time to talk about it because 13 hours, that's a long time to go, right? Uh-huh. If you are on a long flight. A lavatory. You've got a lavatory you can walk to. But you better not try to smoke in there or disable the smoke detectors. Yeah, or else. Because you the, are in for a, for a whipping that you couldn't believe. Or at least a finger wag, right? Uh-huh. That's a Delta Airlines state safety video joke. Uh, yeah, so on the Solar Impulse 2, of course, there's single seater. There's no lavatory there. The chair, the, the pilot seat, Served multiple purposes. <laughs> this was exactly your reaction in the <laughs> April four, 2014 episode. Oh, I said, oh. Yeah, when I got to this part, you and Lauren. So, yeah, it acted as the pilot seat, a cot for sleeping in, and a toilet. Uh-huh. Yeah. Which, by the way, I have a chair at home that serves those purposes, too. It wasn't meant to. But I figure <laughs> with a little determination, you can turn any chair into that kind of thing. <laughs> Wait, so does it stretch out to become a cot? Or does that it, is, do you just sleep sitting up? That is a question I do not... I think I think it may have reclined a little bit. Because I would think just for some kind of strange psychological reasons, you'd need to be in a slightly different position for sleeping than the position you're in for pooping. And And... Possibly also for piloting. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, yeah, that's attractive to think about, right? The idea that you've got, you know, you know, but, but you, you couldn't have a lot of other stuff there because it would add weight. So it was, it became a a matter of necessity. Uh, not the most glamorous of things to think about. All right. So the first trip was Abu Dhabi to Oman. And next they went Oman to, uh, Ahmedabad, uh, India. And here's a funny story. This is what I was talking about with the mundane. Uh huh. So Picard lands in India, and when he gets there, there's this big welcoming ceremony, and there are a bunch of local authorities there. There are members of the media there. They all want to have their picture taken. They all are doing speeches. They're talking to him. They're welcoming him. He's getting this incredible experience, and it went on for so long that Picard was not actually able to go and get his passport stamped <laughs> to, move, to to legally enter the country. They they closed down the office, the, the essentially the the checkpoint where he could get his passport stamped, and so yeah. he was stuck. It was kind of like you know being stuck in an airport. He could not legally go anywhere else, and so uh, he was delayed, and that meant that he was not going to be able to, to catch another flight to go further into India. And meet up with uh, uh, the other pilot, Borschberg, in order to do another switch. And that was to um, Varanasi, India. And so it became clear, like, he w- it was going to make a delay. And this was a big deal because a delay in one place means delays all the way down the line. For th- It's not like they could pick up speed and make up for lost time. This plane was not built for that. Yeah. So it was it was legitimately a concern to them that they were going to have this delay and there was not really anything they could do about it they were kind of stuck in this this legal bureaucratic mess it seems almost a metaphor for those times when a bureaucratic limbo interferes with the progress of technological achievement yeah exactly <laughs> it's a great little way to point at it and i mean you part of you you're like you understand where the issue is well yeah i mean you've got a you got to follow the protocol, but couldn't we have maybe had him get his passport stamped first and then have the big welcoming ceremony? Uh-huh. Um, clearly, no. So uh, they were able to continue, obviously. Uh, so the, the next leg uh, was to Varanasi, India, and then there was the switch. Then um, Mandalay yeah. in Myanmar, and then uh, Chongqing, or Chongqing, I should say, in China. Uh Nanjing, China, uh, Nagoya, Japan, and then we hit the longest leg of their journey around the world. Right, because what's after Japan? Well, if you're playing Risk, you might go to Kamchatka, (laughs) up across through Alaska, but they were crossing the Pacific Ocean. Yeah, and Pacific, by the way, is uh, pretty big. Yeah. It's a big ocean. So they were going from uh, Nagoya, Japan, to Hawaii, and this was the the longest expanse that they were going to have to travel in this solar powered aircraft. Borschberg was the one who piloted this leg, so I guess he got the short straw. Mm-hmm. And uh, this was a record breaking flight. It spanned five thousand five hundred forty five miles, or eight thousand nine hundred twenty four kilometers. Their maximum altitude was around twenty eight thousand three hundred feet, or eight thousand six hundred thirty four meters. So pretty high up there. Yeah. And the whole thing took them four days, twenty one hours, and fifty two minutes to fly to Hawaii. So, so just pretty shy, much five days. Yeah, just shy of five days. Of yeah, pretty much five days. Flying. Yep. That's a lot of poop napping. 
Wow. <laughs> yeah, it's a, I mean, that's an endurance test, right? Yeah. And that, that also shows you have to have a lot of, of confidence in your aircraft's ability to stay on course. And, you know, uh, I'm sure they developed strategies for how long they should sleep at a time and then wake up probably on regular intervals to make certain that they're still on course and haven't drifted or that the weather conditions hadn't changed in a way that was going to put them at risk. There are a lot of considerations you have to make yeah. when you're in that position. It is almost unthinkable to me like how complicated that had to be. I have trouble sleeping on a regular passenger airliner. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I understand entirely. And uh, once they once they landed in Hawaii, they needed repairs, and this is also terrifying. They had to repair because the batteries had sustained damage. Oh, uh, they had been uh, overheating, and so you know, anytime you're talking about a chemical battery, temperature can play a big role in how that battery performs. If you cool a battery down too much, then it is very sluggish. It's not going to generate electricity at the rate that you would normally expect uh so that's a problem but if it overheats then the the chemical reactions can start going uh getting too fast you end up losing capacity so that even once the battery cools down you can never charge it as fully as you did before yeah so this it meant is a that, good reason not to leave your laptop in a hot car or yeah something. yeah because then you're like hey you know it's weird because 100 percent charge the other day lasted me like six hours and now it's like two uh, so they obviously had to do repairs and replacement of a lot of, of parts to make sure that they would be safe for the next leg. Because while the next leg was not as long, you're still talking about multiple days over the Pacific Ocean, right? Yeah. So they get to Hawaii, they have to do repairs. That slows them down a little bit. Uh, then their next leg was from Hawaii to San Francisco. Uh, this was a 2,539 mile or 4,086 kilometer journey, which took two days, 14 hours and 29 minutes to make the trip. So not nearly as long, but still two days of mm -hmm. flying. Two and a half, more than two and a half. From San Francisco, they flew to Phoenix, Arizona, then to Tulsa, Oklahoma, then to Dayton, Ohio. And this is when they hit another snag. Yeah. Uh, so one of the things they had for this project was they had a portable hangar, like an airplane hangar, to store the airplane when it wasn't in flight or when there wasn't a, a hangar that they could use in the location they had gone to. And this portable hangar was kind of an inflatable um, uh, uh, building. So they inflated. It had a semi-rigid structure. And they could park the airplane in there. Yeah. In Dayton, Ohio, there was some problem where the hangar started to deflate. Uh-oh. Yeah, it was collapsing in on with itself. With the plane inside it? With the plane inside it. So you've got this plane with this massive wingspan and this lightweight, strong material, but it is very lightweight material. If you were to put too much weight on the end of those wings, then they could snap or at least weaken the structure, which obviously would be devastating if that were to fail in the middle of a flight. So this was a moment of high anxiety and stress for the entire team. They didn't know at first if the plane had sustained any damage. And so they had to take some time to make sure that, in fact, it was in, still in good working order. Fortunately, it was, but it did end up causing a bit of a delay and and set them back a little further than what they had intended. 
their next trip was from Ohio to Lehigh Valley, Pennsylvania, which is near Allentown. Uh, I'd never heard of that before. You never heard of Allentown or Lehigh Valley? Lehigh Valley. I was about to say, if you've never heard of Allentown, I got a Billy Joel song you got to hear, <laughs> which is really depressing, but it's a song about Allentown, Pennsylvania. Uh, from there, they took off and landed in New York, and then we hit the next uh, pretty long <laughs> leg. So they had already gone across the Pacific. That was the that was always going to be the longest right. of their trips. But now they had another long stretch over ocean, this time the Atlantic Ocean. And they were flying from New York across the Atlantic to Seville, Spain. Uh, now, this took a lot less time than crossing the Pacific. The Atlantic is not as wide, or at least the distance between North America and Europe is not as great. Right, but they didn't have a stop along the way here. No, this was a straight flight from New York to Seville. So this was the second longest leg. The third longest would have been the second part of the Pacific trip. Yeah. The first was uh, Japan to Hawaii. This would be the second one. The third was Hawaii to San Francisco. So this trip uh, lasted two days, 23 hours, and eight minutes, so almost three days. And uh, the distance traveled was 4,204 miles or about 6,765 kilometers. Uh, from Seville, Spain, they flew to Cairo, Egypt, and then from Cairo back to Abu Dhabi where they started. And that would conclude this globe-trotting trip and, um, um, but they were facing challenges right up to the very end. I read in the Solar Impulse blog where they were talking about the very last leg of the journey and yeah. how there were a lot of concerns there related to oh, both, you know, the politics and the climate. Oh, yeah. Of, uh, of trying to cross the Middle Eastern terrain. So they wrote, quote, crossing the Middle East is not as easy as you may imagine. <laughs> <laughs> Which I already think of as not being easy. Yeah. Uh, there are a number of factors such as no-fly zones, mm-hmm. heat, thermals. So talking about the thermal uh, heat patterns. Right, uh, right. Yeah. Like like updrafts of air right. from where, you know, the same sort of things that, that large birds of prey would use to remain aloft. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, takeoff and landing con- conditions and wind making this flight the most complex we have yet encountered. I would imagine, like, just when you start looking at the different countries that they had to either pass over or stop in, it must have been a real effort to get the kind of permissions necessary to make this journey. I mean, yeah. just the, even the beyond the technical challenges, just the political negotiation you would have to do. Uh, yeah, I don't even know. I mean, I can't. Is it difficult to land a plane in Myanmar? I I don't know, but I'm sure that when you're passing through some of the countries that they are talking about, there's uh, you want to be real specific with your permission request to to enter their airspace. And I guess it probably doesn't hurt that they're both Swiss. (laughs) Oh yeah, that probably helps a little bit. But uh, and also, you know, that this was a, a a an endeavor to push uh solar power, and you know, it's a environmental uh, and scientific value to the project, which I think helps a lot of countries say, yeah, we're all right with that. Yeah. But still, I mean, I wouldn't want to be the person who's, hey, we hired you. Your job is to get permission for us to enter the airspace of all of these countries. <laughs> like, and keep in mind that some of them don't like the countries you have already been in. <laughs> yeah. Peace on earth and goodwill toward he who sits in the poop cot. Yep. Poop cot. That's, you know, that's going to be the name of my band. Poop uh, cut, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Welcome to the stage. Poop cut. 
<laughs> so the total journey, as we mentioned, it uh, began in March 2015, finished in July 2016, on July 26th. So yep. uh, it took a long time. It was more than 26,700 miles or 43,000 kilometers in total. That's a long journey. That's a very long journey. Yeah, and you actually, I, I like that you have a note here about what the average flight speed was on that final leg of the journey. You think right. it, you're thinking. Just trying to cross the finish line. Right. They're, they're almost there, so they gotta be putting it, a pedal to the metal. How fast were they going? It was 34.5 miles per hour, or 55.4 kilometers per hour. Yeah. And that. You wouldn't think that you could stay up in the air <laughs> at that speed, right? Well, it's those huge wings, you know. It's, yep. It's being light, it's having the, the design, giant wingspan. And, uh, man, that's, uh, that's impressive. Yeah. And, uh, you might wonder, well, what comes next? I mean, we, now that they've completed this, this thing, they've been working on it for more than a decade. Well, what what are they, they going to do now? Bertrand Picard has said, quote, I'm sure that within 10 years we'll see electric airplanes transporting 50 passengers on short to medium haul flights. That, that sounds great to me, but I somehow have a hard time believing that that will be the case. Uh, yeah, uh, I mean, I mean uh, it would be awesome if it was. I, I don't know how you could, you would have to design it so that the, the speed of travel is much greater to, to make it worthwhile, worth the time. Yeah. Like why, of, why is this commercially appealing? Yeah. Because if you could drive to the location faster or as fast as the process of getting on a plane and flying, then why would you bother with the flying part, right? Uh, um, I guess you could say for crossing water or something, it might be an alternative to taking a boat. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's a possibility. And, and you could also argue that if you were to design like a luxury version of this, it could become kind of a, a, a status sort of thing. But that's not exactly commercial demand. That's talking about, hey, one percenters, how would you like to very slowly pass over the land that you rule with an iron <laughs> fist? <laughs> you know, I would also think that 50 passengers, okay, that's adding a lot of weight. Commercial passengers are probably going to want lavatories and yeah, uh, they probably are not so happy with the poop cot, yeah, the the drink carts and stuff like that. They will probably want heating and air conditioning. Um, so yeah. I don't know. It's a little hard to imagine, but one but, thing that uh, I'm not trying to discourage it. I mean, I, I think it would be great if somebody could figure out a way that, to make this work commercially. I'm sure. just trying to put the pieces together in my head, and it's hard for me to imagine it being practical. I. I Think it would also be awesome if we could make it practical because uh, getting off a of reliance for fuel would be great. I mean, we've talked about the environmental impact of stuff like air flight and other shows. So, um, yeah, I, I would love to see it too. I don't know how practical it is, but one thing that is practical again is the fact that by making this engineering challenge and by completing it, they've shown what solar po- power is capable of doing, and. With any luck, they've inspired more people to really take a serious look at solar power as an, a, a way of supplementing or perhaps supplying all of their electrical power. Yeah. And that would be amazing. Um, and we, we've talked about that in other shows as well. So uh, ultimately, you know, again, it was get your names in the history books and also let's promote the heck out of solar energy and renewable energy. And I think they succeeded on both counts. So uh, really impressive. And it was interesting to look at another kind of engineering challenge. Uh, we talked about that in like all the DARPA episodes too. It's very uh-huh. similar. 
So this was pretty cool. Uh, I'm glad that we had a chance to follow up on it because when we recorded this back in 2014, I wasn't sure if it was ever going to actually happen. There were some times with weather delays and some of the mechanical problems where I was wondering if they were going to be able to complete it, but they were. So congratulations to them. It's pretty cool. If you guys have suggestions for a future episode of Forward Thinking or you've got any questions or comments, send them our way. Our address is fwthinking at howstuffworks.com. Or you can drop us a line on Twitter or Facebook. At Twitter, we're FWThinking. On Facebook, you can search FWThinking in the little search bar. Our profile should just pop right up. You can leave us a message there. And we will talk to you again really soon. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit ForwardThinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Su. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, batter, batter. Are you ready to hit a home run with flavor? Step up to the plate and swing by Penn Station East Coast Subs, where every bite is a grand slam. Craving a classic Philly cheesesteak or maybe a savory chicken teriyaki? Or how about loading up on their delicious fresh-cut fries? Call it a triple play by ordering Penn Station's signature fresh-squeezed lemonade. When it comes to subs, Penn Station is the big league. Order online at penn-station.com or stop at a store near you. Penn Station East Coast Subs.